Well, with that, ha- with that happy verse, Merry Christmas. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Josiah, and I am, it's my pleasure to preach, bring the Lord's Word this morning. Um, I do want to take a moment before we dig into the passage this morning and pray, pray for the sermon, and then also pray for Tim and Christian, as Richard mentioned, they're preaching uh, in the country of Colombia today. So if you would, please bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for being a God who has knit together a body of believers by the cross of Jesus Christ, who will one day bring every tribe, tongue, and nation together across generations, worshiping you at your throne. And Lord, I just pray for Christian and Tim as they are preaching today that you would bless them, that they would bring your word with conviction, and you would cut through the hearts of all in attendance. And Lord, that's our same prayer for us this morning. Convict us where we need conviction. Encourage us where we need encouragement. May you receive all the glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, happy December. December 3rd now, I think. And with December comes the time of Christmas. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Who in here is excited for Christmas? The mix, yeah? Don't you remember Christmas as a kid? The anticipation was brutal. It felt like the longest month in the world, or of the year. You waited for Christmas Day to get here for your presents, for Christmas dinner. But for us adults in the room, it's not really the case anymore, is it? Now, don't get me wrong. Like me, who's been playing Christmas music since October 31st. (laughs) You still love Christmas. But, oh my gosh, this is driving me crazy today. But the time leading up to it just flies by. Thanksgiving comes, we decorate, we shop, we run around to parties, and then it's over. And we're left exhausted, very angrily pulling our Christmas decorations down. For most of us, if not all of us in the room, you would say with conviction that Jesus is the reason we celebrate Christmas. But if we're not mindful and intentional, we will get wrapped up in the same commercialism the rest of our American culture is captured by, and we will miss the glory of this day. This is why Advent is so important. And I'll be honest with you, this first Advent series, we're going to paint the darkness. And we should celebrate Advent. John Piper says, what John the Baptist did for Israel Advent can do for us. Some of you in here may not be familiar with Advent, and that's okay. Or maybe you know Advent as just the lighting of four candles, one a week leading up to Christmas. The word Advent comes from Latin, and it means waiting. Or excuse me, it means coming. The purpose behind Advent in the early church would be that we take time to anticipate the Lord's coming. 
The early church would practice fasting to create anticipation of something physical to remind them of what they were waiting on. Advent allows us to sit in the angst and the weightiness of waiting for Christ. While Christ has already come once, we know he's coming again. So we too are waiting. So here at Trinity, our hope is that we would practice waiting in Christ, for Christ's coming. Even though you may not have intentionally spent time thinking of Advent as a time of waiting, you've likely sung about it in our Christmas carols. Oh, holy night, long lay the world in sin and error, pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Or, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that, that, um, that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Or one that I didn't anticipate finding, but O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. And the last line, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. You see, the good news of Christ's advent does not appear in a vacuum or to a people who are just fine, who are doing okay and need some help. No, Christ comes to a people who are desperate, who have ruined the good creation spoken about in Genesis 1. And as John Oswald writes, they are in a very tragic situation. The reality of our sin and the consequences of our sin being death and enemies of God is the backdrop for which Christ comes into. It's good news that Christ condescended to man because the bad news is real. Our big idea today is as important as it is to revel in the glory of Christ's coming, it's critical that we sit in the weight of the darkness into which he came the night of his birth. Because that's the very same darkness he broke through to save you and me. Today, we're gonna tee up Advent, the Advent season from Isaiah 59. And in this passage, we will see how our actions create separation between us and God. And then we'll see how our actions bring pain. But then we'll see how the Lord's action brings hope. As we go through this passage, I hope you feel the angst of the condition Israel was in. And it reminds you, or maybe for the first time, shows you the darkness and hopelessness of your sin. And more deeply highlights the glory and beauty of Christ's condescension to humanity. So let's dig into the passage with me. Our action creates separation. Look with me at verses one and two. It says, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or is ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you that he does not hear. The author starts this chapter noting that humanity's lack of being saved is not because he can't save them or that God is far, 
But instead, they're separated from God because of their sin. This is a simple reality. Sin separates us from God. This is depicted very clearly in the Old Testament with the setup of the tabernacle and the temple, right? Inside the temple, there was the inner sanctuary called the Holy of Holies. And as much as God created us and desired for us to be with him, no one could enter into the presence of God except the high priest, and that was once a year on behalf of the people. The reality is God is so holy and so other than we are because of our sin. And because of that sin, we're unable to be near him. Isaiah then goes on into what they are actually doing. Look with me at verse three. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. Isaiah isn't isolating their sin to their hands or their their mouth. Instead, he's pointing out that the whole person is sinful. Sin is permeating. When we hear talk about sin in our culture, or we're willing to acknowledge evil in the world, which granted is more and more rare, it's often given a euphemism. And let's be clear, when I say the world, I'm talking about us too. We talk about it's a blunder, or it's a mistake, it's a vice. Even when sin nature is acknowledged at a wider level, it's called a dark area or a dark pocket. This is a very popular trend in movies today to show the backstories of villains to determine how those pockets of wickedness developed. It shows a struggling character who, because of his or her backstory and what has been done to them, how that has made them into the villain they are today. When we do this, we fail to acknowledge the reality that our sin permeates through us and has holistically damaged us. This contradicts with Scripture as a whole, and it contradicts with what Isaiah is saying here. But it's not just for the villains. Look with me at verse 4. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. He's talking about God's chosen people here, y'all. He's not talking about Babylon or Syria or anything like that. The ones he loves. Reiterating this point in Romans 3, quoting Psalm 51, Paul writes, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. Good and righteousness is counter to who we are by our nature in this sin-fallen world. Isaiah, though, isn't simply pointing out that no one is righteous like they are committing a whole bunch of debauchery. He's pointing out that even their interactions with God, their religious activity, their prayer, their going to the the temple, it, it is all done under false pretense. Their religiousness is worthless. Now, you may be thinking that our culture is so anti-establishment and anti-corruption, we've moved past the wave of religious, self-righteous elite. 
But the reality is it's there. And at times it just wears a different mask. We have free access to churches. We can be picky with our churches. We can stream church. We can listen to podcasts and worship music. We have the Bible in our hands, on our phones, on our iPads, in countless translations. And we can still approach things of God from selfish ambition. The people cannot even worship God correctly because they are so lost. So what do they produce? What does a life like that produce? Look with me at verses 5 and 8. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their egg, eggs dies. And from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made the roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. This section is talking about the production of the culture. Nothing good comes from them. Counter to this would be language we hear talking about the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Instead, it's a venomous snake in his eggs and spider webs. First off, these things are dangerous, right? He makes that point. Secondly, they're useless. They're spider webs. Their works and efforts that spend time on them, they do not cover them. They do not make them righteous. Oswald points out that a spider web, while it looks so beautiful in the summer dew, right? It glistens. You see it. It promises something substantial. But unfortunately, it isn't substantial at all for us as humans. It has no real value. This is a state of the people without a savior. Without their God, they speak in empty words and they bring nothing. Lastly, we see what the people are actually pursuing. They do not want God. They do not want the things of God. As R.C. Sproul talks about, We always do what we ultimately want to do. We might think we want something else, but in the end, we truly do what we want. We chase our truest desires. The direction of the people is that they are going after evil. Evil doesn't just find them, they pursue it. And this is true for us as well. We want to soften our sin or we want to have a justifiable backstory of like why we did what we did. And it's easy for us to do. We tell ourselves we were in a tough situation or there was no other alternative. But the reality is there's always an alternative. 1 Corinthians 10.13 reminds us that no temptation has overtaken you that is not uncommon to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability 
But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Do you feel the hopelessness? Do you feel the guilt? God's people cannot even want the right thing on their own. God's people were in a tragic situation. I know it feels hopeless. Stick with me, but feel the angst. Our actions create pain. Look with me at verse 9. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. It's interesting how this passage uses justice and righteousness, because typically in Isaiah, um, it's more of a, a judicial sense, right? It's more of they're bringing people to suit, and there's injustice in the way they're handling their culture. But here, it's more referring to the work of salvation. One other interesting item I want to point out here is the switch from second person to first person. Previously, he speaks about the people's sin, sin. And here he shifts to we concerning their condition. Our sin affects others directly and indirectly. If you've watched anything on a DVD or for some of the people in the room of VHS, it also plays in movies. The FBI warning, piracy is not a victimless crime. There's no victimless sin. First off, God sees all and knows all. We say that simply like it's a known fact, but think about the magnitude there. It's not just that he sees it and he's like, "Mm, Josiah might have done that because of this. I can tell myself why I did something, but God knows really why. Second, sin damages the body of believers. I need to back up for a second. I didn't justify that with a scripture. You might be in the room and you might be thinking, I know my heart. Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah reminds us that the heart is deceitful above all else. So if you're in the room and that's new for you, like we can deceive ourselves in our hearts. Second, sin damages the body of believers. We see this in practice in the Old Testament with the story of Achan. If you're not familiar with the story of Achan, you're familiar with the story of the Battle of Jericho, because if you've ever been in a Sunday school class, you're saying Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho. So after the walls fell down, they were not supposed to take any of the spoils. Achan took the spoils, buried them in his tent, and then Israel started losing the Battle of Ai. They're like, what's going on? Achan's sin led to Israel losing battles. But Paul reiterates this idea when he speaks about the body. In 1 Corinthians, saying, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice. This is part of the reason church, the idea of church discipline must be practiced. The goal of church discipline is always restoration. And if rest- restoration is not met, as Paul and Jesus himself and Matthew remind us, we're supposed to, they're supposed to be cut off or treated as an outsider to see their sin. I understand how counter this idea of what we do affects other people might feel in our individualistic culture here in America, but we have to read the Bible not with a Western lens. We have to read the Bible through the lens to which it was, from which it was written. Our sin collectively hurts each other. 
and hurts the world around us. So then, so what are they doing because of their sin? Well, let's look at the passage. Continuing in verse 9b, we hope for light and behold darkness and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in twilight among those in full vigor. We are like dead men. We growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. Isaiah is giving us imagery of their lostness here. Obviously, they are not physically walking in darkness, but they are literally walking in darkness from a spiritual sense. They grope like those who have no eyes. No eyes. They're never going to see again. They have no idea what is around them. They're that lost. Going back to what was previously discussed regarding their false religiousness, think about it. They don't even know that they are doing wrong, and they cannot even know right from wrong. For those of you in the room who have experienced this, being saved by Christ, do you remember that was you before Christ? Do you remember what it was like before Christ opened your eyes? Do you remember the pain and the hatred towards God or the indifference towards God? You didn't even know. I didn't even know right from wrong. If you're in here this morning and you're an unbeliever you, and you're, you're just saying, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I feel fine. There is plenty in this room right now who we are a testament of people who were blind, but now see, who were dead and are now alive, who were in darkness, but have now seen a glorious light. Only if you've seen the light will you even be aware of your past darkness. Next, let's see their hope, but there is no reason to hope. Starting in 11b, We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God. Speaking oppression and revolt. Conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. I thought I had water up here. Oh, well. Thank you. (laughs) Sorry. I've got a throat tickle. (laughs) Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evilness makes himself a prey. Do you hear the angst here? They're hoping, but they're hoping at nothing. Just like earlier, they hoped for light, but darkness. Their transgressions are in the way. It's like they're hoping to cross the Atlantic. They're standing out there on Playa Linda, looking across, and they're 
I just want to cross. They have no plane. They have no boat. There's no really long bridge. I want to cross. You can't swim that, you die. The author shifts here, though, to legal imagery. And it's very condemning. Stating that their sin testifies against them. And the people are actually even acknowledging their sin. They know they have no hope. They feel their desperation. They see it. They hear it. Shane and Shane wrote a song way back in 2007 called Embracing Accusation. And in it, they sing, the devil is preaching the song of the redeemed that I am cursed and gone astray. I cannot gain salvation, embracing accusation. Could the father of lies be telling me the truth of God to me tonight? If the penalty of sin is death, then death is mine. I hear him saying, cursed are the ones who can't abide. He's right. Hallelujah. He's right. We are accused. They were accused. This is the darkness. This is what the people walked in in the time of Isaiah. This is what the people walked in. This is the backdrop, as I mentioned earlier. So what happened? The Lord saw it and it displeased him, meaning it was evil in his eyes, that there was no justice. And remember what justice means in this passage. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. He saw them, there was no one, there was no hope, And while that is our condition, that is not the end. The Lord's glorious action creates hope. Look with me at verse 15b. Then his own arm brought him salvation and righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to the deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render payment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. The expected response from the Lord seeing their sin here for the people is judgment. God's people were in exile because of their sin. They hadn't been restored because of their sin. And as discussed, even the religious practices they did follow were in fact sinful. He was displeased with them. And he sees no one to intercede. No one could help him. But the Lord saw them. Think about that. The Lord saw them. 
you may be in here this morning realizing that you have no hope. You have no way out. You realize you are far from God. Can you hear me this morning when I tell you he sees you? So after seeing this people, the Lord brings salvation by his own arm. When the Lord saw there was no one to intercede, when he says that, this is a call back to their history. Previously, God would provide an individual to rescue God's people. Read the Old Testament. It's all there, but here are some highlights. Moses led them out of Egypt, but into the wilderness. Joshua led them out of the wilderness and into the promised land, sort of. David established a righteous kingdom, sort of. Many of you have heard this before, but the salvation that God's appointed leader brought time and time again could not bring a full salvation to God's people. Their salvation all oftentimes took them out of harm's way in a physical sense, but they didn't get there spiritually. This is why the author of Hebrews spends so much time pointing out that Christ is the better Moses. He's the better Melchizedek. He is the one. So what does salvation look like? The Lord arms himself. He arms himself with what is truly needed. The imagery we get here is the Lord like a warrior going into battle to save his people. And the people are standing on the shoreline screaming, we're being rescued. He conquers his enemies. Who are his enemies? His enemies in this passage is not the Babylonians. His enemy is sin. And his people have sided with sin. The word here though, repay, comes from the same word as shalom, meaning peace. The repayment brings peace and nothing will be left to be paid. But we don't just need to be delivered. We need to be redeemed. We were created to be the Lord's. So what does he do? Look with me at verse 20. And a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgressions, declares the Lord. They will be brought back. They will be rescued. The payment will be made and peace will be brought forth. This is the redeemer the Hebrews were waiting on when Christ was born and why we can now sing for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. We're going to celebrate this idea by taking communion. Because in this, a new covenant is established. All of the old covenants fell short. The new covenant, however, in the same way that sin permeated into us, this new covenant by God's spirit permeates into us. Look with me in verse 21. And as for me, This is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit is upon you, and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth, or out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. And this is exactly what we are waiting for. We've referenced it here before, but we are in. Justin actually talked about it. The already not yet. In other words, God has saved his people. And this is what we're remembering at Advent. God has saved his people. We look in the timeline of history, God has saved his people. 
But now we look forward and we wait with anticipation to when God will completely save his people and redeem all of creation. Just as God promised he would send a savior, Jesus has promised that he is coming back again. So, if I could invite the the band to join. As we start communion, I hope you feel the angst God's people had pre-Christ. We have angst too. The people had angst, but then they had a glorious night. We have angst on this side. We will have a glorious day when the Lord descends from heaven. We take communion, as I mentioned, looking back to the cross where Christ executed his redemption and look forward to the day he will return again. In Matthew 16, 26, 29, Jesus sitting with his disciples leads them in the Last Supper. So as you take the bread and drink the wine, as I lead you through that, think about what happened at the cross and hope for a day when he's coming again. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of my covenant, blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then he says, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus has a plan. The one who controls everything has a plan. No matter where you are, no matter how dark you feel right now, no matter how down you feel, rest in knowing that the God of the universe has a plan. He's coming again. Let's sing about that, church.